Spencer Bennington is in Florida at the university, well, on lockdown, kind of, at the University of South Florida. How are you doing? Doing great, Paul. Thank you uh, for having me on the podcast. This is like the highlight of my week. <laughs> Maybe month. Maybe the whole quarantine experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, see you've got the, the ultimate lockdown haircut. I do, yeah. The, the official COVID cut. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It was getting, getting a little bushy, and uh, honestly, it was getting, uh, I was pretty thin on the top before, so this wasn't a huge transition for me. A lot of people were, were very, uh, it was kind of like, you know, coming out into my, my true, true hair form, you know, so I finally evolved, you know, yeah. So you are, um, you've completed your PhD in, uh, this, it's kind of a school of like rhetoric and composition, isn't it? It's, it's a literary school, I guess. But you have written about embodied rhetorics around martial arts, the performance of martial arts, the institution of martial arts, with specific reference to your beloved Taekwondo, yeah? That's right, that's right. I, um, my way into martial arts studies as a field was sort of through the back door. Uh, because I always started in an English department. And I want to talk a little bit about that today, how rhetoric sort of became in, intertangled with English departments, at least in the United States. I know it's, it's different uh, across the world. But, uh, yeah, I've been in, in English departments that are typically divided by people that study literature and people that want to make literature. So they're doing creative writing. Yeah. Uh, and then as I progressed through grad school, I kept becoming more and more exposed to people that were studying writing specifically. So uh, both professional and technical writing for the workplace, as well as uh, higher level academic writing. Uh, and that's where I became more exposed to. But yeah, it's, it was uh, quite a leap to get from an English department and uh, let them, uh, you know, allow them to uh, let me talk about Taekwondo in my, in my dissertation. So that was, that was all the, the sort of bendy movie tricks that I had to do. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of convincing. A lot of rhetorical tricks. Okay, so um, so how did you, well how did you hit upon the idea of approaching Taekwondo as a kind of embodied, performed institutional rhetoric? And then we'll talk about what we mean by rhetoric first. Well, how did you hit upon the idea of combining these two things? Yeah, so uh, I actually owe that to my dad uh, because when I first got my black belt as a teenager. Um, he gave me a gift. It was uh, a training manual by Richard Chun, uh, Advancing in Taekwondo, 1982. And uh, at the time, I didn't appreciate it because I was thinking like, oh, well, I learned all the forms. Why do I need a book to tell me about the forms? Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't read it for years. But when I finally did, it was so strange because Chun, uh, you know, had this PhD and he ended up becoming a grandmaster in Taekwondo and it was an authorized manual by the World Taekwondo Association uh, or Federation. Uh, and yet the book was writing about this like mythical Korean history and and had all this like seemingly, you know, Eastern folklore embedded. And then there were these these sections of like scientism sort of things happening where they were talking about bodies and best practices as if they had evidence, but there wasn't any supplied. So uh, I, I just sort of became fascinated with that genre of the martial arts manual. And as I learned more and more about uh, some of the research that people in my field do in, in technical writing, I saw an immediate connection. And, and what was so fascinating is here we have an instructional book 
here's how to be a black belt, mm. right? And the instructions that they give you are often less about individual techniques. You know, obviously sometimes they're telling you, you know, the rotation of your wrist and how to hold your fingers and things like that. But often those techniques are aligned with how to view the world or particular ideologies to adopt or uh, you know, different sorts of inner intrapersonal skills that you're developing. Uh, and I, I just thought that, that using traditional technical writing in that manual genre to access these kind of like mystical sorts of parts of, that we associate with, with martial arts is really interesting. So that's where it began. Um, okay. That was sort of my first way of saying like, no, 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 it's technical writing. It's fine. We can look at it. It's a book. Yeah. Study those. It's good. <laughs> okay. So, so let's, let's go down to some kind of fundamentals. Uh, what do we mean by rhetoric in a, in, a, in a normal disciplinary sense? And how can you study Taekwondo in terms of rhetoric? Yeah, it's great. So rhetoric, when you hear it these days, uh, typically means something like political doublespeak. People often accuse politicians of using rhetoric. Uh, and it usually just means something like uh, duplicitous speech, right? But traditionally, we think of rhetoric as being something from ancient Greece uh, in the times of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And historically, rhetoric was used to actually settle land disputes. So some of the first uh, reasons that anyone was studying how to communicate effectively was because of issues of, you know, hey, you took my property. And to avoid violent conflict, they could settle it in the courts with words and with argument. Mm -hmm. And right there, that juncture, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was thinking, you know, that's the sort of first historical connection between martial arts and rhetoric, isn't it? It's, it's used as an alternative. And we see that pop up throughout different martial arts iterations and martial arts histories, uh, especially when the Kung Fu craze came to the United States in, in urban environments. We saw that sort of resurgence of using something as a way to distance yourself from physical violence, whether it be dancing or rapping or anything like that. So rhetoric then in that ancient sense came in three species. Uh, we think of judicial rhetoric that I just described, someone uh, thinking about uh, past events and trying to make a judgment, you know, who's right, who's wrong. We think about deliberative rhetoric, that's sort of uh, accustomed to what you might think of in, in parliament or in the Senate uh, traditionally, people arguing about new policies and, and, and how to go about, um, you know, making the populace and the city the best place. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have uh, epideictic rhetoric. So that came about for, for ceremonies, uh, the old praise and blame. Uh, and so that, that for the longest time became the full spectrum of uh, effective communication. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we get into definitions of rhetoric that if you Google it now, you might see something like the art of persuasion. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a simpler way of saying Aristotle's definition of being aware of all of the available means of persuasion. Uh, so classically in that sense, rhetoric is, is a kind of critical awareness, being able to look around and see who is trying to affect you and in what way, through what types of communication. Mm -hmm. um, but the definition that I actually like, it's a little more contemporary, and it comes from a book called The Rhetoric of Rhetoric, which I think is the best title of any academic work I've ever heard. It's very funny to me. 
Uh, but Wayne Booth's uh, definition expands this idea of rhetoric to the entire range of resources that human beings use to produce effects on one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because as far as the discipline goes, save the last 20 years, maybe 10 years, uh, rhetoric was one of the, the sort of academic fields that needed the cultural turn the most. Because when you study the history of rhetoric, what that typically means is that people only look at the Greco-Roman tradition and how it expanded westward, you know, through um, the Renaissance and Enlightenment medieval period and on to modern rhetoric as we understand it. And as we saw in the Western education system, it split into communications departments where people were thinking more about uh, speaking in the classical sense. And then English departments that tended to house first year writing programs or technical writing rhetoric got embroiled there. But um, if we think about it in just those terms, rhetoric expanding West, we're, well, we're kind of forgetting at least half of the world. And when we say West, we typically mean like North America too. So we're, we're kind of forgetting maybe three quarters of the world. <laughs> and um, that, that kind of um, ivory tower sort of definition of rhetoric and its sort of whitewashed rest Western tradition mm-hmm. uh, led, <laughs> led uh, anthropologists to publish studies uh, in the 20th century that said things like, neither Africa nor Asia to this day has produced a rhetoric. And I just love the way that's written because it's like the, the ultimate mutton choppy elbow patch sort of statement, right? Mm. Um, and that was addressed in uh, scholars like Sing Lu's uh, Rhetoric in Ancient China from the fifth to third century BCE. She's basically showing a foil to what's happening mm. at, you know, in the times of Aristotle over in China with uh, schools like Confucianism and Taoism that she's describing as ancient Chinese rhetorics. You've got various other scholars that are looking at different parts of the world, different histories, and trying to expand that disciplinary landscape of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, and so looking at different cultures, looking at different bodies, different contexts of... Yeah, so bodies, bodies, bodies. How do we, how do we, get, how do we get from persuasion and communication to, to, to embodied practices? How, how can an embodied practice like a martial art be a rhetoric in your... In your approach? Yeah, so it actually, even going back to the ancient Greeks, uh, Deborah Hawhey's 2004 work, Bodily Arts, looks at the intersection of athletic bodies in places like the Lyceum, which we think of as being just strictly a, you know, sort of gymnasium. Mm-hmm. But uh, the sophists, the, the teachers of rhetoric, also use that space. So athletes were very much positioned to learn rhetoric and athletics that we would consider martial arts, so boxing, wrestling, pancreation simultaneously and so what that means and here I'll kind of show you something this is, this is pretty neat this is why I've got the mats here but um, what that means in a classical sense is that boxers right for, for those of you at home if you think of a boxer sort of in their stance bobbing around the idea of slipping a jab okay is an embodied rhetorical move because before you perceive a punch coming to your face you sort of embody this idea of like Got to move, right? It's very this quick movement to counter, and so one that fits into the rules of boxing because you want to stay close to your opponent, you want to hit them quickly without them hitting you. But two, in an ancient Greek sense, that embodies this this rhetorical sense of kairos or timeliness or seizing the opportune moment. And so, training in boxing and training in rhetoric 
in those times would have been very much together. Whereas, you know, now we think of a bodily education or a physical education as being very separate from a rhetorical education. Um, similar examples from that time period, wrestlers adopted this idea of metis hexis. So hexis being another one of Aristotle's words, uh, a habitual bodily state. Mm -hmm. And they achieved this through training. So wrestlers trained to be slippery and flexible so that they could escape a pin. And so they start thinking about metis in terms of uh, avoiding your opponent. And you can do that both in speech or physically. Okay. Um, we see this happen in uh, various other martial arts. So that's kind of where my argument started with, with Taekwondo. Okay, if, if Ahi can look at this in terms of wrestling and boxing, what, do we, what can we look at as far as Taekwondo bodies? So I looked at, I, you sent me a draft of your, of your, um, your PhD and I was, I was reading it. I didn't unfortunately get a chance to read very far into it, which is annoying because it's really interesting. And you, you argue, uh, you connect this sense of rhetoric with, with nation building and, and the production of a, of a community mm -hmm. and the history of Taekwondo, you know, so it, it's mythologically thousands of years old, but actually 1955. Um, but you argue that it's kind of like a disciplinary apparatus where people become produced through a rhetoric of nationalism. So like, yeah. so the, the Taekwondo, uh, patterns or, or kata or pumse or whatever they yeah, um, the students are given uh, instructions as to what they mean so that it's it's very much a sort of civic or ideological education is that still true i mean you're you're learning in you're learning taekwondo in virginia or florida wherever you were living at that time were you being nationalized or were you being ideologically Kind of indoctrinated into a isn't Korea great and I want to go to South Korea and become South Korean or something yeah. so <laughs> you know I, I thought about this idea I was reading um, I read a lot of your I like your writing so I, I read a lot of your works in terms of martial arts studies and, and you use the phrase sort of offhand uh, I think in disrupting disciplinary boundaries about martial arts operating as institutions martial arts institutions and bringing in that idea of, of Foucault's discipline and punish and training bodies. And I just thought it was so fascinating. And I think that if we look at martial arts in that sense, maybe they're not all nation building in that traditional sense. So originally the uh, General Choi's Taekwondo forms were very nationalistic. Each one uh, was lined up with this Korean cultural war hero. So it was very much machismo and domination and we're the best strong bodies, strong mind. Mm -hmm. But when Choi, um, you know, began associating with the communist North or, or maybe it looked like he was being a sympathizer or there was sort of a power grab within the organization. Choi got ousted and his forms got replaced with things that looked different and therefore felt different and they could be marketed as different. So what do I mean? I'm gonna give you another example. Okay. Choi's forms, since they came pretty much from Shotokan Karate, they uh, had a lot of Japanese techniques. And before they were changed, you might have seen a lot more of your traditional D or stance, very low, so low that I can't even do them very well. And so these would be choice forms. And to revise to the Pumse that we do now, the Tegu Pumse that the WT endorses, a lot of the changes involved standing up because the martial art became more about the high kicks 
where you don't want to be low. This is slow. This is for power. And this is higher. But the truth is, and Udo Monig knows more about this than I do. He's, he's kind of the, the Taekwondo scholar. But uh, in the 2019 article, he wrote about this idea that perhaps the subtext there was not, you know, this, which one is faster, which one's better for kicks, but which one looks less Japanese or, you know, is less visually involved with communism. Mm -hmm. And so the Taegukpum say don't celebrate Korean nationalism at all. They actually uh, connect to the Taoist cosmology of, of familiar, for those of you that, that have read the, the I Ching or looked at, you know, the, the Pagwe or the, the trigrams. Mm -hmm. And so learning those forms is supposed to be something metaphysical and it's not about nation building at all. You're supposed to, it's supposed to be a meditative practice. Yeah. So, but in both ways, the institution is trying to train practitioners, uh, mold their ideological stance, and they do frequently offer very direct advice for how they should take their practice and enact it in the world. So how they should treat other people, how they should act in interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that comes from those older sort of Confucian values or Taoist ideas, or at least maybe perhaps some of those self-orientalized versions mm. of what those look like. Um, but yeah, to an extent, Taekwondo, even to this day, is you know, operating in that institutional sense by, by trying to sort of transform practitioners through training. And that's kind of at the heart of what I was looking at is taking Ben Spatz's idea of technique and looking at how, how these institutions take a bodily technique and give it that rhetorical significance of looking Japanese or communist. Okay, so you're, I guess the, you're sticking with the word rhetoric rather than an aesthetic because it's that kind of broad sense of the communication of a, of a message, like signified content as opposed to an aesthetic value. I mean, rhetoric and aesthetics are incredibly um, connected. So the visual aesthetic is not just an aesthetic, it's actually, it, it has an encoded message within it. Or, 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 or a semiotic function to distance, to look a bit more Chinese or to look a lot less Japanese is, yeah. is the order of the day. Right. So when I teach rhetoric now in a, in a writing classroom, instead of all of the sort of history and definitions that I gave you, because I thought maybe you'd find it interesting, I keep it really simple. It's a simple acronym, P-A-D-D, -D, Purpose, Audience, Design, Delivery. So when we think rhetoric, we don't have to think texts or speeches. We think of someone doing something with a purpose in mind to a specific audience, and they've designed their message or their text accordingly, and they've thought about how exactly to deliver it. And so when we look at martial arts in those terms, suddenly, you know, a lot of the people uh, in martial arts studies, uh, some of the people that I was reading before I got started with this were writing about martial arts discourse. And I, I actually addressed that uh, at the conference last year in, in Orange, that there is a distinct difference between thinking about martial arts discursively as sort of this idle chatter between community members and outsiders. And then rhetorically as someone does have a purpose in mind there there is an aim or a goal here and sometimes it's top down from the institutional level and sometimes mm. it's sort of you know, bottom up that, that that people are sort of breaking away but um that's that's sort of the key difference there is is the purpose i think so we so we can see if we look at the if we look at the history and and the the physical changes in the postures and the movements and the syllabus or syllabi 
we could almost map that onto a, a, a history of motivated actors who have various agendas. Let's distinguish this from the Japanese who we've just got rid of and, and committed all sorts of terrible atrocities in, in, in Korea. And then there's the problem of the distinction between North and South Korea, communism and, 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 and call it capitalism or uh, liberal, liberal democracy on the other hand. And so what kind of rhetorical, if you were to come up with a rhetorical narrative, right, of like the rhetorical moves or a narrative of the rhetorical moves um, in, in the history of, of Taekwondo, what would, what would be the key statements or the key kinds of instances of, of change? Yeah, so um, the way I'm writing about this right now, so originally I broke it down into four sort of chronological periods beginning uh, right there at the end of the Korean War. So between that era of 53 and 55, uh, 1953 is when Choi demonstrated what was yet unnamed but would become Taekwondo mm -hmm. to uh, President Sigmund Rhee. And then about two years later, uh, the various Kwan leaders, you know, they were very, they were disparate sort of Korean leaders teaching Japanese martial arts in Korea. Um, but Throughout that two-year period, they were becoming uh, unified, and Choi probably strong-armed them into calling it Taekwondo. So this is the invented tradition of Taekwondo, this period right here, because um, the reason that name even exists is because President Rhee was trying to anchor the sound of Taekwondo to Takian, and then therefore resuscitate Takian and invent its tradition as being this ancient Korean martial art. Yeah. Uh, when in fact that's mostly made up. So this first period is all about inventing the thing itself. And if we look back at rhetoric, there are five canons of rhetoric that we typically focus on. The first one is invention. So I love reading about all these invented traditions because you know, the first step in, in the argument is creating it. Yeah. Um, but then the second period comes when uh, Choi first forms um, the International Taekwondo Federation, his ITF, and then gets ousted and it's replaced by the Korean Taeng Sudo Association, later changed to Korean Taekwondo Association, later changed to World Taekwondo. This period is the martial arts as institutions. So it's achieved an institutional status in Korea. Um, and their goal now is to make sure that everything is standardized and uniform before it's ready to be exported to the mm -hmm. world stage. Mm -hmm. And so this is the period where we see the production of manuals and various internal media uh, texts that, that teach these practitioners how to behave, how to work together as this imagined community cohesively, so that in the decades to come, when they start bidding for Olympic uh, particip participation, uh, which Olympic sparring first uh, came in, in in the 2000 Olympics, um, that they would be taken seriously by the International Olympic Committee in the, in, in the uh, and so that is that sort of third pivotal moment where uh, post Kung Fu craze, the, the new uh, forms that the WT were, were sort of exporting to the world uh, kind of had that mystical sense to it. And they appealed to sort of that 60s, 70s countercultural mindset in the West. You add that to, to the transmission of martial arts through things like Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, it becomes popular enough. Uh, to, to be on that Olympic stage. And now we're in this, this final period where Taekwondo is, is this worldwide phenomenon and it's changing faster than ever. Like now if you Google Taekwondo videos, 
you might see just people jumping 30 feet in the air and doing flips for no reason. Um, and a lot of that, that sort of demonstration mentality has been removed so far from some of the traditional things like Pumse and some of the more combative elements like sparring um, and become combined with this era of Taekwondo diplomacy. So the North Korea question, right? That suddenly there's two Taekwondos and they're becoming these visual symbols of working together dialogues it's amazing yeah. so those those that's kind of like the broad strokes of the rhetorical history of taekwondo okay um what was i going to say i've been distracted by the the fact that i think every time you put your hands in front of the screen like that the sound drops out a lot but um oh i'm <laughs> oh, sorry <laughs> maybe, maybe gesticulate yeah that'll work it's like that's this <laughs> really good uh, yeah i i i encountered this i went to a, a conference in south korea um uh, muju or somewhere where the the taekwondo one is um and on the one hand you've had people tell it you know because the, the, there were there were there were korean academics and there were japanese academics and they were each arguing about how their country was older and had you know there's this long running battle between the south koreans and the japanese about who invented it first you know who who came first right and who thought of it first and who was better at making swords and everything <laughs> And, and I, I gave a talk, and I can't remember if it was before or after my talk, but this old guy, like really old Korean guy came up to me and you, you're foreign, why are you here? And I said, uh, well, they asked me to come. And he's going, why are these people, um, <laughs> why are these people saying Taekwondo is ancient and 2000 years old? He's like, I was there when we invented it. <laughs> we invented it and in, in 1953 and I, it, it, it's great and we just invented it as this great thing and I thought that was really interesting because on the one hand they still argue for the ancient history they, 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 they put stake that claim ancient history on the other hand it's increasingly well known that it was invented deliberately and then at the same time as that it's so inventive now like it's so like taekwondo now compared to when i was doing it in like 1991 or something mm -hmm. it's different it's an entirely different thing how do they how does the, the the mainstream institutional discourse how does it reconcile the idea of the tradition and the absolute inventiveness of what today often looks like um gymnastics mixed with cheerleading uh, the first thing I'll say is we're lucky that the sport and the art is so popular worldwide because if this were on a smaller scale, uh, Taekwondo is so seemingly disunified. It's disjointed because of all of these different practices that it entails. And I think the only thing that really saves it is when you go to a Taekwondo school, the first question you want to ask is what sort of major institution they're affiliated with. What what your belt rank is going to be authorized by, you know? Mm. And, but even when you get into like, the, I'll just use World Taekwondo as an example. It's the largest institution. They're the ones that are sending you competitive seal on this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> you go school by school and you sort of have to ask like, okay, are you more of a traditional school or are you sparring focused? Oh, do you guys like to do, you know, fancy demo kicks and tricks? Yeah. You know, and so there's there's sort of subgenres within the community, and, and and in a way that's good because that means you can have like 50 different Taekwondo schools in your city, and and mm. maybe they can all uh, bring bring in you know students. Yeah. But uh, Udo Monig makes an interesting point here, though. Uh, he thinks that 
the sport is too disjointed. And he kind of arrives at this argument after looking really closely at the technical development of sparring techniques. Um, because if you look back at the Olympic footage from 2000 and then 2004, every Olympics, the sparring is visually and radically different because of rule changes mm -hmm. and because of uh, technology scoring changes. So we went from ringside judges to electronic scoring equipment that's been changed. Point systems have been changed. So, so the art, in many ways, because of... Um, technical writing, you know, these rules manuals is changing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the physical techniques themselves, I think, are just a response to sort of some of these uh, conditions and restrictions that are being placed on, on the athletes. Um, and maybe some of the fancier tricking demo stuff we see is just a sort of reaction against that, that kind of thing. And, you know, some people don't want to fight, some people don't like forms, so. Okay, I, I, want, to, I want to change tack slightly. Um, oh. I want to, sh I'm going to share a screen. I'm going to share uh, this screen, which is your rhetorical roundhouse project website, rhetoricalroundhouse.com. And you have a blog and you have different resources uh, and you, you, you post lectures and essays and you talk about, well, everything really you talk about job hunts and teaching and you talk about it's really um, interesting and dynamic. And I just tell us about this and what what was the what, what does it why why rhetorical roundhouse? Why do you like that term? And what's the project? Yeah, so the name, I think, is just great. I love an alliterative name. And it puts everything up front. Roundhouse is the, one of the more iconic kicks uh, that, that, that uh, people can identify with. Although you, you might be surprised how many people ask me what a roundhouse is. I, 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 you know, a lot of people don't, don't recognize that as a, yes, as a technical it's bizarre. I, it's bizarre, isn't it? I get this. So if I go to different clubs, <laughs> I play in different styles, whether it be kickboxing or whatever I'm doing. And I'll say, oh, do a roundhouse. And then they go, what? And you go, oh, do a turning kick. And they go, okay. And it's like, why can't you just know these two terms for the, anyway. Yeah. No, it's, it, it can be frustrating, but I do love the name. And it, it sort of puts front and center the two things that I wanted to combine, which is a, a rhetorical understanding uh, of, of martial arts and martial arts studies. And the, um, the project itself actually started, I mean, it was, it was a student project. It was part of a, a graduate course. Uh, and I'm glad my colleagues encouraged me to do it because it was sort of the fun. I had like this fun project in mind and then this maybe work project, but I ended up abandoning that work anyway. So I'm really glad they pushed me to do this. Um, the original impetus was actually thinking about forms themselves and how, even though we're, we learn the exact same eight forms before we can test to be a black belt, um, and we're supposed to do them the exact same way, they're also encouraged to be this kind of moving meditation, which is a very personal thing. So the first things that I made were the uh, Pumse poetry series, where I'm going through practicing my Pumse, meditating on what they're supposed to mean and applying them to my life. And so it was very much this artistic venture. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd still welcome anyone to make videos like that and submit them. I think that'd be a really cool collection to have. But I'm actually switching gears. As you mentioned, um, most of this past year, I've been using the blog function, function and just kind of keeping up with the scholarship I'm producing as well as the, the job search, you know, graduating, doing all of that. Mm -hmm. But I announced in January that I'd like to transition Rhetorical Roundhouse to being a full-fledged uh, nonprofit organization by 2021. And the, the basic goal at the outset is just 
that uh, to advance the belief that a martial arts education can be beneficial both physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, and then to provide funding resources and the kinds of materials people might need to teach martial arts in a critically reflexive way. So it actually reminded me a lot of what Alex Channon was talking about when you two were discussing physical education and martial arts. So that's where we're headed. Okay, okay. So it's, it's, it's something that, that you might develop with lots of other prongs to it. I mean, there's a, when you're talking about that, it, there's, there's a, there's a well-worn connection, and this is nationalistic, it's also moralistic, about the relationship between um, a martial, learning a, a national martial art and becoming a better person. And I think that to a greater or lesser extent, this is something that infuses much of what we would call traditional Asian martial arts. Um, and to what extent, what's your relationship with that claim? Because the idea that, because there are, it's a complicated one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's nationalism. And the Japanese have done it, and the Chinese have done it, and, then, and lots of people have done it, and the Koreans have done it. But on the other hand, there's, as a practitioner, you kind of feel it on your pulse that there seems to be some truth in it, like yeah. that we're better people because we're much love. <laughs> but even saying that makes me like think, oh my God, if I just... There's something, isn't it? There's, how, how, do you, how do you engage with that, that, that something? That's like, there's something, there might be something in this. So it's, it's interesting that we do associate this with the traditional Asian martial arts because from a rhetoric, historical rhetoric perspective, um, the Greek, ancient Greeks uh, thought about this in terms of what they called pousiopoiesis or the art of becoming, the, the manufacturing of oneself. And so this idea of training and becoming a better person because mm -hmm. they did have a full-fledged combination of physical culture and moral culture that has mm -hmm. expressed through arite, cultural virtue that you could see in someone's body. Yeah. Um, so they had this belief too. And fun story, I do want to tell you about this guy. We have a, a Batman in our disciplinary history. I don't know about you or what you think your disciplinary home is, but you may not have a Batman. We have a Batman. Okay. His name is Demosthenes. Uh, have you ever heard of Demosthenes? Yeah? He was a terrible, terrible orator with a, a horrendous speech impediment who got laughed and booed off stage and then went and trained by himself in a cave, literally in a cave, by, by putting gravel in his mouth and reciting speeches and running uphill to get his wind up. So he was very much sort of this poster child of embodied rhetorics, right? Training to be a rhetorician. And so... We have these things too, and yeah, you're right, that they do manifest more typically in media as being this orientalist sort of path to enlightenment kind of trajectory. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, it's tricky because yeah, I get it from a rhetorical perspective. These institutions want me to do one thing, but at the same time, the somatic experience, the routine, the training, they really do make me feel better. And mm -hmm. that's enough for me to at least pursue research to see if it can make other people feel better too. Um, mm -hmm. So it is tough, you know, I've got a critical brain here that's like, no, 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 someone's spoon feeding me this propaganda. Mm. And then my body brain here is like, but it, it feels good, it feels right, you know? Yes. It's tough. Which I guess, yeah, maybe, maybe well, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, I guess, the, 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 see, when, we, when I talk about institutions, and you mentioned earlier that you like my occasional throwaway comments about martial arts at institutions and you connected that with Foucault 
and I and I get that and I know all that and that's always there in the background but in the foreground of my thought is a line written by Jacques Derrida and it's um, it, possibly one of my favorite sentences of all time and it's um, and I've used it to conclude many an essay <laughs> and it's um, and Derrida says an institution uh, this is not merely the four walls surrounding us, but it's the very structure of our interpretation. Like, so, um, an instant, so, so, you know, we can experience something and we are also, that experience is structured by the, the discursive or rhetorical or aesthetic or political or combination of all of these things environment. So I guess we're never, we, we're never going to have a pure experience of a, like, a, of an ideology free martial art, are we? We're never going to, because we're going to train, we're going to go, wow. And, and, and we, we just, the thing that's there is when this is making you a better person because it's just there in the attending discourse, isn't it, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I think the way that I would try to mitigate that a little bit is to suggest that rhetorical roundhouse is a way to offer a sort of toolkit for uh, martial arts instructors that want to make sure that what they're offering to predominantly children Mm -hmm. is an effective, both, both physically effective, like they're teaching their art, but also it contains sort of like writing prompts or things to reflect on as they practice. So if each one of these forms has these sort of esoteric meanings, then maybe children or practitioners should be engaging with them more critically and directly and, and thinking about them so that it's less just this fuzzy feeling of maybe I feel better, but, but uh, a very concrete, no, I've been thinking and meditating about myself in these ways through my you know, I think that that would drastically improve. Okay. So, um, so you've you've completed the PhD. Um, I you, you're looking for a job. You've occasionally, and this I guess is it, it. We'll take this maybe with a pinch of salt. But you you express doubts about which you don't know which career direction to take. Like maybe you want to quit academia. Maybe you want to be a full time. Um, taekwondo instructor so what what did what do you think the the future the immediate future or the medium future kind of looks like for you yeah well i am still technically on the job market but as you can see i love being in florida because yes <laughs> and uh so i do uh have a job opportunity where i can stay here next year and i'll probably end up taking that because i do have a wonderful uh, academic home at the University of South Florida, as well as the Taekwondo home here in Tampa. Um, but long term, you're right. I still, I still am kind of trying to figure out how much of myself I want to involve in academia versus martial arts, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, a, I think that's a tough challenge that a lot of people that are going to come into our field will have to struggle with, because most of the people that I met are in some way a practitioner and a scholar. Mm -hmm. It's a tough balance because, again, thinking about spats, you know, the, the, the academy doesn't really reward the physical or practice uh, much in the same way that they reward writing uh, or, or scholarly production. So it can often feel like uh, our time is, is thin. But uh, that's, that's sort of my cryptic answer. I will, I will say that uh, hopefully you'll be seeing more about the Rhetorical Roundhouse Network moving forward. Okay. So, you know, okay. and next year, next year, hopefully we'll be having a chat like this in person. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, <laughs> that, that would be good. If, if we, if 
travel is allowed and if universities allow us to travel then we, then there'll be a conference in switzerland like just like there was one meant to be one in in marseille yeah. now it's almost exactly 12 months since we were hanging out in california yeah yeah and then you uh which <laughs> which was good <laughs> it was a good time it was a it was a good combination of the um the intellectual and the and the shall we say practical <laughs> absolutely theory and practice put together so i've got a uh, a little rundown list here for you for some examples of how we might think of martial arts as rhetorical if okay you cool kind of review that and we'll move on and um so the first way we've talked about this martial arts are presented to people in order to motivate them toward action or belief so a traditional example might be sensei says i must do 100 push-ups to be strong enough right for karate so um but it can also happen to public audiences. So think about the ways that um, terrorist organizations are presented in the media as you know, being a threat and we need to deploy uh, the military to stop them, right? So suddenly this martial institution, this terrorist organization, uh, you know, their threat has motivated us to action. Um, the second way is that martial arts are used as rhetorical appeals for larger narratives. So my favorite example is Rocky IV, when Rocky and the Russian basically end the Cold War in a boxing match. <laughs> and the reason I love that is because it seems so hyperbolic and silly, but actually it's kind of just a trumped up version of uh, the Joe Lewis mock Schmeling fight uh, in World War II. It was played up as this democracy versus Nazism in the ring. Um, and we see it again in like Jack Johnson uh, you know, against the great white hope uh, in, in the early 20th century. So we often have these larger narratives being played out in, in mm -hmm. martial arts. Um, we get into the rhetorics about the bodies who practice martial arts and those who don't. And we often start at a place of, you know, orient orientalism. And we think about how Bruce Lee's body changed body identities and politics and, and what we think of as martial arts. We get in the intersection of Hong Kong and urban hip hop cultures like the Wu-Tang Clan, and I already mentioned break dancing and things like that. So, uh, and then things like uh, female bodies, do they, don't they, how do they, you know, uh, participate? Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and then the last one I think is that, uh, or the, the rhetoric's embodied through physical practice and their history of reinvention. So that's every time Taekwondo is new again, you know, for a new audience. Uh, and then uh, communicating violence for a particular purpose or audience or exigency. Uh, so, you know, when do you use violence or nonviolence and why and, and, and what message are you trying to send with that? So that's sort of the, my top five, how I think uh, martial arts rhetorics look. So maybe I'll try and synthesize that for you and send it into the journal. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. And I think that, it, I mean, it speaks to, um, when, you, when you're coming out with a list and I, uh, lists kind of make me nervous but um but then it i was thinking of um six vetzler's um you know five dimensions kind of five dimensions of which which makes me nervous and which i i kind of kind of went hang on a minute i don't like this it's too neat and tidy it worries me but the thing that i've been thinking about and maybe we can kind of finish on this i was and actually you know newsflash today was the first time since lockdown that I have spontaneously started writing about an intellectual matter that has, I've just gone, oh, I'll start writing about that then. So I, I wrote a little bit this morning about the kind of visual, and I actually, I think it's because I was going to talk to you today 
And I was oh, you're thinking, welcome. I was thinking about the visual rhetorics of violence. I was thinking about Alex Channon's and, and like uh, Janet O'Shea and all these people in the Love Fighting Hate Violence Project who say martial arts aren't violent and they get into arguments with people like Kyle Barrowman who says MMA is violent, the UFC is violent. Look, he's smashing his elbow into his face repeatedly. Mm -hmm. That's violence. And they say, well, no, it's not. It's sport, it's consent, it's blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I was thinking about the visual rhetorics of violence and one thing that really sold me on, on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was the idea that, it, that the claim that it kind of takes violence out of the world. Like if, you, if someone comes flailing at me and jujitsu, you just kind of squash that and just, just smother it. Right. But actually I was thinking, there's such a complex conundrum, isn't there? Because like, if I'm punching and kicking someone, it looks violent, right? Mm -hmm. If I control and subdue someone and just start to, you can't see the violence, but it's potentially infinitely more, like absolutely lethal. Like the reason people tap in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is because if they don't, they die, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I'm thinking about Taekwondo. You think, oh, Taekwondo isn't associated with violence. One reason is it's sport. The other reason is it's beautiful, right? And I'm thinking about these different visual rhetorics that produce a sense of, it's violent or it's not violent. Like mm -hmm. we look at martial arts and go, oh, that one's violent. Because look, he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. but that one isn't violent because it's like, pow. And it's, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Is, are we talking about visual rhetorics there? Or are we talking about just aesthetics or like illogical interpretations? No, I think we are. And um, I, I think it's a rhetorical thing because the moments that I think of at high level, Taekwondo sparring that would definitely, I think, categorize as violence are the sort of highlight reel knockouts, you know, someone getting kicked in the head. That is a violent thing. Like, there's no way around it. Um, and, but yet, right before it happens, right before they drop to the mat, that is a beautiful technique. So what do we do with that? You know, and I, I don't think that I'm firmly in the camp of the love fighting hate violence where I would say that it's not violence because of consent or sport or rules or whatever. Still violence, um, and so yeah. Where I think the visual rhetoric becomes interesting is when you start thinking about rules, because the rules are what create those techniques. And if you compare it against something like UFC one, where there were no rules, you know, in the first five seconds of the first match, someone you know, gets kicked in the face and a tooth goes flying and, and they wanted to stop the fight even though there wasn't a rule because they perceived it visually as too violent. Yeah. And so, and we get the same thing. We can stop matches if someone gets kicked in the head too hard, right? Yeah. So there's a threshold, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be certainly interesting. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I what think- What are you thinking about it in terms, just, just comparing BJJ to, to striking? Well, no, I, I just think about, because I, I think a lot for a long time, I wasn't interested in grappling because I thought it was ugly and boring to look at. But there's, and, and, and you know, I was, all, the thing that got me into martial arts was probably Bruce Lee and specifically probably the kicks. Um, and then the whole tradition of martial arts films through the 80s and 90s and the kicks got better and we got Van Damme and we got, and, and Taekwondo was the thing. It's like, like if I do a, a jumping, spinning back kick, and hit you in the head that's entirely irrelevant to me like it's the kick looks beautiful your reaction can look dramatic i don't care about you as a person <laughs> <laughs> and I, there's no malice it's just like i can do this i can see the target i'm gonna hit it boom just bingo and it's like 
it's not violent. It's just like, if you die, then, ooh, you know. If he dies, he dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, think, I mean, I feel the same way because when I land a technique that I know looks really impressive and yeah. it's perfectly timed, I feel good. But then when I realize that the person I kicked is hurting, I pretty much immediately apologize. <laughs> but these are two different realms and registers. And then you yeah. go home and you go, yes. Yeah. And I really took down that 15-year-old kid. I showed him who's boss. <laughs> yeah. like, I think the first tap I got in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was like some 15-year-old kid. And I was like, I got a tap today. Got... Yeah, he was about 15, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's why we keep it going, man. That's, that's it. That's what we live for. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe if I tap like a 75-year-old, then, then that balances it out, you know. There you go. Okay, Spencer, it has been an absolute delight as ever speaking to you. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll meet again in the real world, but if not, I'll see you around online. So thank you very much, Spencer Bennington. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely enjoyed it. See you again, Paul. <laughs>